1: Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: As always, a pleasure to have your company for This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who certainly made his mark on the racing industry here in Victoria and indeed around Australia. Almost 2,400 winners and of course he trained one of the greatest horses of all time. Her name was Black Caviar, his name is Peter Moody and he's in the studio with me. Pete, welcome. Great to be here, Pete. We go back uh, a little while. I was just trying to recall the first time I met you it was probably after Amalfi
2: won the derby. Yeah, that was my first feature winner and a uh, nice way to sort of announce my arrival in Victoria.
0: We'll talk about that, that particular derby, but when you win a race like that at that carnival, How much does it do for your profile as a trainer and how much does it get people who previously weren't aware of you interested in what you might be able to do?
2: Oh, it's, uh, you know, does endless amounts for your business for sure as a a young racehorse trainer. At the time, I was still based in Queensland and I'd just opened a satellite stable in Victoria probably about six months previous to that. And uh, that was off the back of sort of good clientele in Queensland and New South Wales, but I had very little interest in Victoria. So I had to... uh, have a bit of luck quickly otherwise it was going to be a fading shadow i uh, came down in mid 2001 a mate of mine jim conlon had just moved from caulfield down to cape shank and his stables at caulfield became available and the vatc i think it was at the time uh, gave me permission to train there and racing victoria gave me a license and uh, we set up base and uh, you know six months into that it was very important to to get Hit the ground running.
0: You trained for so long at Caulfield, it Mm. seems as though the racing industry is now getting away from training at the big training centres and everybody's getting their own property if it's possible. Mm. Do you think that's the way the English model will eventually take over racing?
2: I think it's just a real estate situation as much as anything. You you see the inner city tracks Australia wide these days. We saw it in uh, South Australia where they lost the old Vic Park and then Cheltenham and. uh, In Queensland, uh, like, uh, I was sort of domiciled in that Hendra area around Doombin and Eagle Farm for my early stage of my career and all the stables off course are now on course and all the big old stable blocks of uh, Bruce McLaughlin and and Roy Dawson and all that are all housing or apartment blocks. Randwick, similar, um, although they've always had the on course stabling. um, The off course stabling's all gone now and uh, used to be sort of Stables all around the around the streets of Ranwick and Kensington and even across to Rosebery, where long before my time there used to be a racetrack and horses used to float into Ranwick. So it's it's just a natural progression and I suppose Corfield, that real estate around Corfield, I think Caulfield's a bit of a unique situation. I I believe everything inside the uh everything outside the course proper to the streets is, is Melbourne Racing Club, and I stand to be corrected, and I believe the infield is crown land. So it's got to be made accessible to people. And, uh, um, you know, that land's just become too valuable, I suppose. It's got to be used, and, and the community's built up that much. It's, it's a shame. Like, you you lose a lot of history. Uh, like, when I first went there to Jim Conlon's stables, I was off course behind the members' Car Park and those old cobblestone laneways that are yeah. still there. But all the stables are now apartment blocks, so... Mm. Uh, um, you know, I think we're such a vast country with so much room, but the, the, uh, upkeep of those private facilities is massive, you know? So I think, uh, the racing industry need to get on the front foot and provide first-class facilities. We've seen Ballarat really develop in the last five or six years off the back of Darren Weir's success. Pakenham's being developed at the moment. Cranbourne has been an ongoing project ever since I've been in Victoria. So, uh, you know, I I think it's just a natural thing. And unfortunately, for the inner city people to pop over to Caulfield or Flemington and watch their horse have a trial or a gallop in the morning, it's probably going to be a bygone era soon.
0: Something about that clip clop that you used to hear in Leonard Crescent and around the streets of Caulfield before track work in the morning. It's just it's like a soundtrack to racing, isn't it? Of days gone by.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, and and it's amazing how people don't respect or realise the area. I was just listening to another radio station uh, late last week, and um, a lady under the near the South Melbourne Town Hall complained. About the clock that's been ringing since 1880 on the hour every hour from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. Really, and uh, you know it's a bit like a person moving into Caulfield and complaining about the smell of horse poo and flies. Yeah, you know what? What did they expect? You know, uh, this this has been going on there for probably 200 years, and that's something I went through quite a lot of when I was domiciled at Corfield, complaints and that of the neighbours, and then there's been community groups that have really worked hard against the training of horses there but it's been, like you say, a fabric of society there for hundreds of years and it is coming to a close, I think, sadly too. How do you reckon racing's going at the moment? I think it's in a good spot. Uh, you've got a half a billion, $500 million in prize money between Victoria and New South Wales alone. That's mammoth. So the possibility of return to the investor that hasn't been there for probably the last couple of hundred years is really uh, gone ahead. Um Listen, we've, we've hit a few curveballs, and I've been one of those myself. Mm. You know, we've hit a few bumps in the roads and a few speed humps. But uh, it's a very forgiving industry. And uh, because it's a gaming industry, you know, people quite often frown upon it. People remove from it, which is sad. You know, it's one of the largest industries in this country, the equine industry. I think third or fourth largest in the country. So that's phenomenal. And the return to the community not only in this city, but Australia-wide, rural, provincial, whatever, is Mammoth. So it doesn't get a lot of the respect it deserves, but because it's a gaming industry, unfortunately a lot of people frown upon it, and they really highlight the negatives. And there's so many positives out there and so many wonderful stories, you know.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that I say when people talk to me about racing and and some of the things that attract those headlines Mm. that you're talking about it's the genuine love of the animal that I saw in my time going to stables and talking to trainers and jockeys that shone through to me, and I I don't know how you could be associated in a sport like this if you didn't have that love for the animal.
2: No, that, that's right. It's uh, you know you don't get out of bed for minimum wage at two thirty three a.m. in the middle of winter, pick up horse manure and feed and water them. Without having the love of the horse, you know, and, and I know myself, it was a business for me and I had to run it as a business and it was a big business and a business that was very good to me. But the reason I became involved in it and the reason I believe I succeeded in it so well it was, as uh, I think I had a genuine love of the horse and, and I still do. I, I still really share that and I'm still very much involved for that reason and that reason alone.
0: Do you miss the hands-on aspect of what you used to do though? Because your role has changed and you were very much the boss and you were calling the shots and you were hands-on. Is that something you miss?
2: Yeah, well, it's 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 always hard from going, uh, you know, your top dog, and then you're having to uh, answer to other people and and uh, you know seek their approval to do things. And and I sort of do a bit of consultancy now, a bit of a uh, consultant role uh, with a few organisations, namely Rosemont Stud, based down at uh, Narwari and near Geelong, and Wiley Dalziel, a syndicator here in Victoria, and. And I still do a fair bit for some private clients as well and just go and seek their approval to do things. It's it's unusual for me and something that took a lot of getting used to where I used to have a committee meeting of one. made made the decision. If it was the right one, I'd pat myself on the back. If it was the wrong one, I'd try and find someone else to blame like anyone else. (laughs) Learned uh, that from jockeys over the years, did you? Exactly. So it it is an unusual uh, turn of events for me, but uh, I'm, I'm still very involved. But I really miss the competitiveness Probably on race day of being a trainer, like in my role in the media now, with uh, Racing. dot com and Ladbrokes and that, I attend a lot of race meetings and uh, to see the boys there saddling up one in a, in a good race or any even a maiden at Bainsdale, it doesn't worry me. The competitiveness of getting a horse ready and, and the craft and, and the and the artiness, if you like, I uh, you know, I, I do miss that. Um, now I drop my horses off that I own myself or I manage or consult with. At other trainers' doors, and then wait for them to call me and let me know what's going on instead of being in the engine room, and that's that's the bit. And and the camaraderie between the trainers at Caulfield, especially, we a we a great, close-knit group of trainers and, and good blokes, and you could bounce off one another. And uh, and I think uh, you know it was special, and I miss that.
0: Yeah, I've been part of some of those early morning training mm-hmm. sessions, and I often thought, gee, it might be a good idea to record this, but you could never put it to air.
2: No, no. Uh, <laughs> you'd probably uh, you'd end up in an asylum or a, or a jail or, uh, or a cemetery.
0: <laughs> in that order. <laughs> uh, um, what about um, your time in the media? Well, I spoke about 2001 meeting you, and I think probably you were not the most comfortable guy in front of the camera, would that be fair enough to say? But that's changed a lot.
2: Yeah, well, I've always had a good relationship with the media and I've always worked closely and well with them, I think. Um, probably a bit of new kid in town back when you yeah. first met me. But uh, even in Queensland, I noted the how important the media were to broadcasting the right message about the success you're having and trying to grow you stable. And, and I always tried to make myself accessible to the media for that and uh, and work hard with them uh, because it, it's very important they put the message out there in front of people and uh, you know you could go somewhere and train a handful of winners and no one know about it if you if if the media weren't on side as such you know or, or you could uh, train one winner totally left field and as long as you had the right media person's ear it was front and center and and that got promoted and for me, coming from uh, Queensland to Victoria, it was not only a mammoth step for myself and my family, but business, I did it on the back of, uh, I trained for some very good breeders in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, and predominantly most of my clients were in Queensland, and I knew they weren't, they were prepared to support me for a certain degree, but I know people like to be around where their horses are racing, so I had to quickly, you know, develop a, a Victorian clientele. Because even though the day I stopped training, you know, nearly three years ago to the day as we sit here, I still trained for a lot of my original owners, but the backbone of my stable were Victorian clientele that that came on board. So I had to make sure, you know, I, I didn't have the ability to promote myself, so I had to use the media that were available to me. And, and I, I made sure I had a good working relationship with them, uh, an honest working relationship with them. And, uh, you know, it served me very well, probably until the last short time in my career.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Did you find the transition into the media a fairly easy one? Because I can stand there all day and talk to Chris Waller about his horses. But if you talk to Chris Waller, there's that empathy between the two of you, especially with those two great horses that you've had. And that, that brings an answer that I possibly could never get from him.
2: Well, it probably is easier for me to deal with racing folk, um, because I know what they're going through. I know when they need to be left alone. I know when they're probably happy to have a chat. And I did a bit with Channel 7 the last few years in the Autumn Carnivals, and that was around, winks and that, and they asked me to do a few things with Chris, and I said, no, you know, I know, listen, he's going to try and oblige it, but he's not going to be wanting to do it because, you know, he's got other things or this on his mind or that on his mind, and then they'd put forward another suggestion and say, yeah, that's a good idea because he's probably going to be able to do that. So I've probably been able to aid some of the media outlets that I've helped with that bit of insight knowledge and to be able to have a chat to them and um you know, has it been easy? Do I enjoy it? Uh it, it allows me to get close to the good horses on good days because I, I pretty much only partake during the carnivals, um, and you get the best seat in the house. And it really surprised me how quickly it's flowed. Like if I went to the races as a racehorse trainer and had a runner and race one and five, I'd go and sit in the car for two or three races and read a book or Read the form guide. It's amazing how quickly it turns over. You have a chat pre and post race and walk out the back and have a bunger and a leak and the next <laughs> the next horses are in the yard. So it's amazing for me how how, how quickly it's gone. And, and I have enjoyed it. I, I really have. And, I listen, I hope I've done a fair job. I've, I've been invited back to most media outlets that have given me a little bit of work, so I've, I must be doing more right than wrong. And, and it's been great working with... Uh, different personalities in the media and, and learning about them and off them and and the knowledge. You know, someone like Bruce McEvaney, uh, you know, his, his knowledge is unparalleled in in all sports and, and uh, you know, many other commentators and, and blokes you can sit back and sort of learn off them and uh, the old adage, you know, you're never too old to learn, eyes and ears shut, eyes and ears open, mouth shut.
0: Did it come at a good time for you, that opportunity, because it would have been easy to be... Bitter about the whole experience. Do you carry any bitterness about what happened?
2: I do. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. But funny thing, my wife probably put a point to me as much as anything. You know, you can go and lock yourself in a dark room and stay away from every bugger. But I honestly believe I did nothing wrong. Uh, I felt hard done by and I felt a lot in the industry let me down. I wasn't looking for a free hit, but I was looking for a bit of understanding. And unfortunately, the cobalt crisis that brought about my undoing still... Being played out today, uh, and I find that to be very unfortunate for the people that are tied up in it. And I think more importantly, the officials know know more about it than the trainers that they've ping for it, me included. Um, so one thing my wife said, you know, you always prided yourself on, you know, if someone, you know, the best way to front someone you don't like is to run up and shake their hand and give their wife a kiss and pat their kids on the head because you know that's going to hurt the bastards more than turning and running the other way so my theory towards officials of the racing when I did have a few opportunities to work in the media not mainstream racing media because there's no doubt there's a black man on me there I did have approaches to do it in the very early days but I know the people that wanted me there weren't allowed to employ me Uh, I thought when the opportunity rose if I could sit there under those officials noses and uh, and uh, you know do, do a good job, I reckon that would hurt them more if they never saw me again. <laughs> mm. So uh, that was my little niggle in the side. But listen, we've got to build a bridge and move on. It's not the Sydney Harbour Bridge the one I've built. It's probably a rickety old bamboo bastard up in Papua New Guinea somewhere. <laughs> but for the sake of my sanity and uh, you know the people around me and and the support of my family and all that, I've got to get on with life.
0: One last question about this because I don't want no. to dwell on no. There's so much more that we've got to talk about with your career. But did friendships um, break at that time? And, and if they did, have you been able to repair those?
2: I think a lot of people at the time, and and even the odd one now still that I trained beside, um, were very skeptical, you know, I've got the bastard, that's why he was going so well, this and that. But I think as people have learned about this Cobalt Saga as it's gone on, uh, I think people probably have a lot more understanding for what I went through. And, you know, at the time I know people turned their backs on me and walked away and I know a lot of people basically put a lot of shit on, to be honest. And and blokes that I had respect for and some of them uh, great trainers and people I had great admiration for. I still respect their careers and what they've achieved but don't respect them as people. Um, But that's part of life and every walk of life, in it? You learn who your mates are. And uh, I was lucky that I was surrounded by a strong... Solid family and and a good group of core friends and uh, you know ninety percent of the blokes at Corfield that I worked beside understood what I was going through. So uh, no, we we got on with life. You know, there was dark times. I'd be lying. You know, How dark? Never anything to thinking doing anything silly, but I you know I pulled up beside the Monash Freeway and Wellington Road with my hands and my knees crying like a baby at times, thinking why me? You know what? What what have I done to deserve this? You know why? A racing so hell-bent on destroying what I thought was a good, successful career. And I worked, I believe, very hard to promote racing in a positive light. And they just would not have a bar of, at the time, any sort of meeting, finding any middle ground. So not only could I get on with my life, but racing could. Because it was, you know, at the time, and there's been probably a couple of scandals since, but at the time it was probably one of the biggest scandals in racing. And a stable... Of the magnitude of mine had never been closed you know uh, at that point ever um, but they just didn't want to bar of it you know and, and we've since learnt, you know the days of uh, me being on the front page of the herald sun with a syringe in my hand injecting had to give this horse cobalt on the day at race to, to get these levels now we find out that the slightest thing can lift their levels and unfortunately you know, innocent people are getting caught up in it without not having any understanding of it. You know, I think there's some 200 unresolved Cobalt cases in the three codes of racing in Australia. And unfortunately, I think for those people out there that have them, if it wasn't for the likes of maybe Peter Moody or, or to, you know, maybe a Danny O'Brien or Mark Kavner, the fear that authorities might have or the legal ramifications that authorities might have if they threw the rule in the bin where it duly arrives, uh, the ramifications that could come about some of us taking action against them. uh, I've pretty much resolved myself that that'll never happen. If someone walked up to me and said, listen, we're going to get rid of this rule, we're happy to give you the legal fees that it cost you, I'd probably happily walk away. But uh, that's never going to happen, and unfortunately the people with these unresolved cases are going to have to go through a bullshit scenario like I did.
0: Let's leave it at that because, as I said, 2,399 winners. Mm. There are a lot of good things to talk about. For sure. And we'll do that on the other side of the break with Peter Moody, my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. More with Pete coming up after the break.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to this is your sporting life with Peter Donaghen for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
0: What a pleasure it is to have Peter Moody as my guest on this is your sporting life, Pete. Where did it all begin, the boy from uh, Queensland? Where did your love of horses begin?
2: I grew up on a cattle and sheep property in Western Queensland, uh, Whyandra, uh, between Charleville and Cunnamulla, far southwest. And uh, family always had an interest in raising. My family was like most in the bush when the seasons were good and cattle prices and wool prices were good um you know the family used to race horses with the local racehorse trainers when there was a drought or bad season those horses were used for stock work so always had a love of them and um my parents divorced when i was quite young and i moved into town and with my horse background pony clubs and shows and gym carners and all that it sort of led to a natural attraction of uh racehorses and thoroughbreds and and sort of basically instantly instantly fell in love you know i was probably 10 or 11 12 at the time and uh you know, we used to travel uh, vast distances out there for everything. But racing, you know, it's nothing unusual to go two or 300 kilometres or mile even for a race meeting on a Saturday and get home at midnight and get on the footy bus Sunday morning and go the same distance in another direction for a game of footy in the winter or cricket in the summer. And uh, it's just a part of life. But I had the opportunity to go down and work for Tommy Smith when I was 15 through a great mate of mine, Brett Kavner, who trains up at Scone now, and he was a big part of my success down here. Brett used to do all my breaking and educating of horses, firstly at Togham Mall and then at Albury. And uh Brett's stepfather John Drennan was Tommy Smith's horse breaker, so I arranged for me to go down there as a fifteen year old and I can still remember that first morning getting off the McCafferty's bus at Darlinghurst and getting the cab to Todman Avenue. Uh, Barrel Street between Barrel and Todman Avenue it was the Tullock Lodge and uh Settling in there and walking over and having a look at the Rimwick Racecourse and, uh, you know, the expanse of the place and everything. It was it was just, uh, you know, it, this was my career. This was what I was going to do by hook or by crook. And
0: uh, What was your first meeting like with TJ?
2: Oh, listen, TJ had a great affinity for kids from the bush, I think. Um, you know, you probably didn't have as many bad habits as a few of the other <laughs> older boys and... Uh, But it it was a great learning curve. You know, I I created friendships in those first few years at TJ's that I still hold through today, which I'm very proud of, and blokes that are still strappers and work riders and, you know, mightn't have wanted to go on and be trainers or whether bad luck or uh, bad judgment cut them back. But uh, I I still love getting up to Sydney and getting to to the Doncaster Hotel at Randwick or... uh, you the other pubs around the area and there's always someone there you worked with and and I, and I really pride myself in the fact that I can sit down and have a beer with those boys uh, still to this day that I I kicked off with back then you know and uh, it was uh you know I I think uh, you know I was a big sort of you know laid back lout from the bush and uh you know I I uh had uh, plenty of opportunity to develop bad habits, but I didn't, and I think people respected me for that. And, and uh, you know, I had a good work ethic with my upbringing, and uh, it sent me on my way. I, you know, I spent about three years on and off with TJ, and uh, then uh, I went home when I was 18. Knew everything. I was going to train in the bush. And you do when you're 18, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and that six foot tall and bulletproof. But I quickly, you know, I, I missed that growing up stage too. You know, growing up with my mates in the bush and. Playing footy and cricket and chasing shielders, drinking grog and probably smoking pot and everything else you did when you were 18 back then in the bloody 80s. Speak for so, yourself. Oh well, you'd, you'd probably outgrown that by then. <laughs> you were in the 70s. You were probably a flower power child belting around Australia in a Combi van. Yeah, right Come yeah. on, this is about you, not about me. So, uh, <laughs> so we won't go there, right? <laughs> and so I went home for a brief period and quickly realised that my future lay, you know, metropolitan racing and. Uh, I had a, an associate that put me in contact with a young trainer at the time called Bill Mitchell. He'd just moved to Randwick and he had a few handy horses and uh, went down and worked with Bill and had a great, you know, it was a fantastic 10 years, basically 10 years to the day. I think it was 89 to 99, Bill and I, five years in Sydney and five years, at ran his satellite stable in Queensland where we were sort of a bit of a forerunner for training partnerships. We applied for a training partnership back then uh, in the mid-90s and the, with the Queensland Turf Club and obviously they knocked it back because they weren't the done thing then but we had a business relationship that, that grew and, and that allowed me to develop my own business, my own skills and and I managed and trained and looked after the horses in Queensland and Bill continued on with his Randwick stable. and we had good success and part of that success was a very good sprinter called General Nadiem and he was probably the horse that enabled me to showcase my talents and and credit to bill he never ever held it back you know he, he always you know gave me a pat on the back because bill was the licensed trainer but he always recognized that i'd worked with the horse and had him his sort of most of his career at, in brisbane and uh we won the magic i think we won 12 out of 16 with him and uh, we brought him down to melbourne won a lightning stakes in a new market and um, I traveled down with horses with Bill over the years to Victoria, but that was the sort of first time that I came down here, with, you know, with a, with a horse of that caliber and to win those sort of races, you know, previously we'd come down and won a carbine club and a few mares races with a few fillies and that, that we had in Bill's stable, uh, stylish century, but that was yeah. a bit of a circus and we had a great old horse called Liverstone Elaine and another good horse called From the Planet. But they were unfortunately uh, had a lot of issues. But general, the DM arrived in town, you know, and he I think he ran the Lightning, and you know he's a short price favourite. He was he ran last in an Oakley plate, and then we were able to bounce back and win the Newmarket handicap, uh, beating Scandinavia, who ended up being the Grand granddam of Black Caviar. Mm. Uh, a very short margin and, and at that time I thought well I will never ever work with a horse this fast again. Little did I know that the horse she beat that day is going to produce one a bit faster about 20 years later. Late 98, 99 that I decided to go it alone with Bill and and, and that was very amicable. Um, I gave him six months notice and he really appreciated that and we gave the clients the option of whether they left horses with me or gave them to Bill and we were very supportive in their decisions in doing that and I was fortunate enough when I kicked off, I probably kicked off with 40 or 50 horses in Brisbane and and, and I really enjoyed it and and loved it. But um, Queensland racing, unfortunately, seems to be shrouded in controversy and governments and elections have never had the backing, a strong backing of strong racing, you know, not since the days of Russ Hines and all that. When I was a kid, the racing ministers and that, uh, like you see in New South Wales and Victoria to this day, you seem to have strong governance and, and, and racing going ahead, but Queensland you'd have these flash in the pan things and you've got great carnivals, a winter carnival and and now the Magic Millions Carnival, but the day to day running of racing and, and in and probably in fairness it's such a vast state compared to the likes of Victoria. Um you know, it was just hard to make a living. You know, I'd find myself paying the wages on Friday and having to snip the staff as they walked out the back gate, and that was after I trained eight or ten winners for the week.
0: Yeah, so imagine how the others were going. So
2: Yeah, exactly. So I, I quickly realised, and I had the support of my wife Sarah, and we had a very young family then. We had th- three girls under two. That for us to have a future, it, it was going to be in Victoria, and it was very timely that Jim Conlon, who used to stay with me during the Northern Carnivals, uh he knew of my desire to come to Victoria and train, and that opportunity to open that satellite stable at Caulfield. And I was very selective in the horses, and I had the backing of my clients on what horses we came down here. And ultimately, one of those was a Melphy. Um, you know, he won the Norman Robinson, then won the Derby. But I won quite a few other little stakes races around the place for some very influential breeders in the Hunter Valley, and uh, namely the Esplin family. Um, Philip Esplin, he was one of them. Original directors of Arrowfield Stud, and then uh, his own farm in Twin Far- in Twin Palms Stud, and uh, and Stuart and Trish Ramsey, Tarunga Farms. Uh, they were very good supporters of mine, and I, I had success for them, which was re- most important because they were my main backers. And th- and that, you know, word of mouth spreads, and and then I had other people on board, and I think it was about two thousand and two. 2003 we decided that we would close the Queensland operation and put all our eggs into one basket in Victoria and I commuted for about 18 months between Brisbane and Melbourne it's funny I I used to be able to watch the horses gallop uh, you know I used to do my gallops here on a Monday morning and then fly back to Brisbane and do them on a Tuesday morning but I found in the summer months with the daylight savings I could quite often get home in time to Eagle Farm by 8.30 in the morning or 7.30 in the morning and watch the barrier trials (laughs) because of the the time change and things like that. So it was very stressful. Um, And like I say, I was lucky I had the support of good clients and and a strong woman at home to get me through that. So 2003, full-time in Victoria, and I think we won our second group one then. Might have been... Ancient... Um, ancient Songs? Ancient Song might have won a Salinger yeah. or somewhere around there. And, and the ball started rolling. And I think about 2004-05, f- I won the Victorian Country Premiership. And for me, and those early days in Queensland, travelling vast distances, it was great education because... Not suggesting that I was a forerunner or anything, but it's funny, you know, self-praise is worth 5 ages of stuff all. (laughs) But when I first came down here, when I had those horses that weren't good enough to be winning in town, it was a very good learning curve for me because I used to take a truckload to Donald or Swan Hill or Chuka or Bairnsdale, places I'd never heard of, Stony Creek. And uh, it was a good learning curve for me because I taught average horses how to win by placing them correctly. And... Then realised that these average horses could knock off the Blue Bloods because they were six foot tall and bulletproof. And, you know, I used to stand in the Caulfield Trainers Tower every morning, and the boys used to take the piss out of me. And, and blokes I had great respect for, Freedy and Colin Little, and, uh, you know, different blokes there uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, where you're going today, moods, you know, I'd be going to some far flung track, and my truck would be the only one in the car park. Well, you go to those far flung tracks now, you're lucky to get a slot in the car park. Mm-hmm. you know. And with those wins, I, I attracted Victorian clients and, and the quality in my stable grew and, uh, and developed. And I think right through to we won our first Premiership and uh, Metropolitan Premiership, I won a couple of country ones. And then a young bloke, or oh, not much younger than me, only a few years younger than me, came along called DK Weir and he yeah. started cleaning up everywhere in the country. And uh, and I was fortunate enough that I think I won three or four Metropolitan? Three, I think. Three, yeah. three Metropolitan Premierships. Uh up to 2009, and we were getting sort of a, probably a group one winner every year or two. And, uh, you know, uh, then the history books will say uh, along came uh, the greatest of them all and uh, for me. And I pinch myself every day that I was able to play a small part in her life. And, of course, we talk about Black Caviar.
0: Yeah, and we'll, we'll devote a break to her oh. because I think we have to. But a couple of horses just before we go to the break. Typhoon Tracy. She did you ever have
2: one that tried harder than she did? She was a bonny mare, God. She was a such a thing as a beautiful, you know. She was a she was one of the few top line fillies and mares that I've ever seen that kept her femininity, if that makes sense. Mm. Probably a little bit winksish, but she's probably a little bit stronger, but not the bone and muscle of a Maccabi or a Sunline or a Black Caviar. She was just a queen. She was a princess, Black Caviar, and I've got no doubt in the world it was due to her that Black Caviar ended up being as good as she became. Because when I had issues with black caviar in the early days and and probably could have been forced to push the envelope with her and maybe hurt her, I could walk out the back and pat Typhon Tracy, who I knew was going to pay the wages, keep the fridge full, and be going around in five or six group ones that year. And for any trainer, that was an unbelievable thing to be able to do. And I had a lot of other good horses at the time, and that enabled me to give this unbelievable, promising young star who had issues namely black caviar, the time that she required. Um, just a beautiful mare. And it was one of the few times I've probably cried over a horse when uh, I think it was um, Peter Orton from Vinery Stud rang me the morning and told me she died foaling, having her only foal. And it was mm. it was a very sad moment. And, uh, you know, to retire her at the top of a game, I retired Well, I think we can touch it a little later, But one of the greatest things for my career, I think, ever is... And like I say, self-praise, five-eighths of stuff, all is the three best horses I trained, being Typhoon Tracy, Black Caviar, and and All-Australian Horse of the Years, all retired off the back of Wait for Age Group 1 wins. Yeah. So that was very important for me to see them go out where they belong. But she was a princess, Typhoon Tracy.
0: Can I ask you about one other horse, one race in particular? You trained wanted to win the new market. That was one of the most bizarre days that I have ever had at the races.
2: It was unbelievable, wasn't it? Um Funny thing, long story short, so I know we've got a time frame here. Wanted won that race in the massive hailstorm. I rang my wife, Sarah, at home, and I said, Hun, and and we live at South Belgrave, we've got a farm there. I said, I'm not sure if this storm's coming your way, but should just grab those couple of mares behind the house paddock and bring them into the barn just in case. Couple of mares who used to spell together Typhoon Tracy and Black Caviar. Wow. I said, You should just probably grab them and drag them into the barn. She rang me back about an hour later she said, you wouldn't believe it. i just got them in under the roller door and that bloody hit. And we were building a new house at the time and it destroyed the roof on the new house. But the barn right. withstood everything. And there's probably the two most valuable mares in Australia that were in a paddock together. Oh. Listen, I think they would have been sensible enough to take cover, but you don't yeah. know. But that day, wanted winning that new market. That was phenomenal. That was eerie, wasn't it? That, like It came from nowhere. And, and the way the horses veed and, and people had all these theories that, you know, did he win it? because of he's the best horse or they have this herd thing. But he, he was a good, tough, bloody sprinter. And, and, and uh, you know, he ran Black Caviar to a neck there one day in the mm. Danehill Hill Stakes.
0: I remember two things about that day. I remember that it was green when the race was run. Yeah. It was just the most eerie light. And yeah. the other thing I remember is that Wanted got away from the strapper after the race yeah. and went airing her- down the tunnel yeah. because of the conditions that were going on. Yeah. And John Patterson, the clerk of the course, mm. turned his pony... And blocked him. And blocked him. Yeah. And put his life on the line.
2: Well, he was probably very fortunate where my strapper that day kept him in the enclosure where everyone else had bolted. And thankfully the tunnel was empty except for Pato. Yeah. And what a great horseman he is.
0: We are just about out of time, but uh, I've got one more segment that we are going to devote to the Great Mayor. And we're going to talk about a couple of the wins, but mm. just in general, what it's mm. like to be associated with a sporting phenomenon like Black Caviar. We'll do that with Peter Moody on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: Peter Moody is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. Pete, black caviar. Was it, it was obviously a privilege to train her. Was it a curse in some ways as well because you became the face of racing? You went to the races every time with, her, with people expecting that you just had to turn up to win. Did it put a lot of pressure on you at that time? Did you enjoy the ride totally or
2: was it tough at times? It wasn't until the day I retired her. That I really then realized how much pressure it did apply to me it was like the weight of a building being lifted off your shoulders it was phenomenal I thought I handled it pretty well but that's for other people to judge um the pressures external to racing were the uh, hard parts you know the she became the biggest show nearly the biggest sporting show in Australia in respect to her like and the people removed from racing that didn't understand it. You know, I had prime ministers wanting her to go up to Canberra so the queen could meet her. I had the queen wanting to meet her in Melbourne. This is queen Elizabeth wanted to come and visit her. And they ended up getting her to, to go on an old wooden tram that, that restored rather than that. Um, you know, I, I, la- I joked with Archie Thompson the other night, Moomba wanted her to be queen of Moomba. They mm. wanted her in an AFL grand final. That was probably greater pressure than actually getting into the races. Um, The other pressure, and any coach or whatever, and Chris Waller and Hugh Bowman be certainly feeling this at the moment, is we love our champions in Australia, but we're soon quick to jump up and down on their heads if something goes wrong. And I knew if she ever got beat, along with Luke Nolan, that we were the two that were going to get kicked to death if she ever got beat after that record. So I had to be mindful of that, the pressure of going to the races and knowing the only way she was ever going to get beat. The facts and figures supported this was if something went wrong. Mm. And regardless if that was misadventure or greed on my behalf, I was going to get kicked to death for it. So that that was enormous pressure. And it was unusual to have to um, – winning a race was about relief, not enjoyment and celebration. It was enjoyment and celebration for the con- other connections and for the people around her. But for Luke and I, you'd go home totally exhausted now, I pinch myself every day that I've had the opportunity to train one of our greatest horses. I'm never going to say she was the greatest, but to me, she always will be. Um, you can put the records of all the great champions of Australian racing around the wall there, and the one uniqueness that she will always have and will never be probably equaled is she's the only one undefeated. So that's something pretty special, but for Luke and I, it was it, it was sad that it was more about relief than enjoyment. Mm. But when the day we retired, we were then able to enjoy it. And I've actually had this conversation with Chris Waller. I reckon you'll get more enjoyment out of Winch's career the day you retire and you can sit back and reflect on it without that pressure. But she was a phenomenal athlete, um, power strength, like the great JB Cummings, the neck of a duchess and the ass of a cook. (laughs) And she was just a powerhouse. Uh, She had unbelievable ability. But like all great champions, she had that raw ability as an early horse. Thankfully, as she matured, both physically and mentally, she was able to harness it and use it in a positive way. And we've all seen brilliant young animals, equines or sports people, all the ability in the world. Like every great champion will say they've played with someone 20 years ago or saw someone 10 years ago that was just as good, if not better, but their path didn't go the right way. Thankfully she harnessed all that brute energy and I was able to manage it and push it in the right direction because I would say as a two-year-old, I probably had other two-year-olds with just as much ability but they never went on and they never improved uh, with that mental capability or physically as she did.
0: I remember the day she won the TJ and I had to speak to you in the mounting yard Mm -hmm. there and remember there were a couple of things went wrong with the camera and we did an interview (laughs) and I had to come to you and say, Pete, can we do it again? You you fulfilled it because I think you felt part of what was going on. It was one of the more extraordinary days. The emotion on a race course that day could hardly be replicated.
2: That's a, at her last run? Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I, I was starting to think it was very close to the end. I didn't know it for sure on that day, but maybe in the back of my head I did realise it. But that night, it was just on dusk, had you to remember it was the last race. Yeah. I'm not into the horse whispering stuff. I think people have a great understanding. But I reckon she looked at me in the enclosure, Donna and Paddy Bell and Tony Hayden, my right-hand man, they were all there as the people were getting photos. And I I reckon she looked over to me and said, hey, Moods, I'm rooted. I've had enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it probably took 72 hours for me to really gather that in and, and uh, call the owners together. And they thought I was calling them together to maybe discuss another overseas trip. They said, I pointed out all her ailments. They said, what do you want to do with her? I said, is a great number. I think we should retire. And there wasn't one dry eye in the house, hmm. but there wasn't one suggestion that we should do anything else.
0: We're just about out of time again, so I'm going to take our final break and then some final thoughts with Peter Moody on the other side of the break. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
1: You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
0: How lucky have we been to live in an era where we've seen Maccabi Diva, Winx and your Mayor Black Caviar all in one lifetime, all mayors, all champions,
2: You you might have to wait another 100 years to see it. It, It's been a great time for racing, so let's celebrate these great champions.
0: And we celebrate your part in racing as well. You've been a big part of it, and what you did with Black Caviar will never be forgotten by a lot of people, me included. We wish you the best in this uh, fledgling career. You'll be taking over my job. You'll have your own interview program probably next week or the week after. Uh, But everything seems to be going really well. Thanks for coming in and sharing some of your stories with us.
2: Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat, mate. Really appreciate it, and uh, good luck, good punting. Not a bad trainer, not a bad bloke. That's the last two lines of my book.
0: Good on you, mate. Peter Moody joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life, the Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, and we'll be back with another edition of the program same time next week. Hope you can join us then.
2: It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.